1 Corinthians 15. We've been uh, doing this series on what it means to be the church, if you remember. And uh, we are, this week, going to be talking about uh, what grounds the church. In a sense, what is the church's sure footing? We've talked about Jesus as the founder of the church. We've talked about uh, the worship of the church. We've talked about the indwelling spirit. Uh, we've talked about spiritual gifts. We've talked about all kinds of stuff, character, and how to live, and all of this. I think it's interesting when you get to this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. Remember, uh, last week we talked about how the Corinthians are in a bit of a bad place. Uh, they've got some real serious issues. And some of their issues have to do with what to do with spiritual gifts. And Paul has to write a word of correction regarding the proper use of spiritual gifts. And then we get to chapter 15, and Paul kind of brings them back to the main thing. They're going to get the first thing to be the first thing. And uh, so that's what, that's what we're going to do this morning, is talk about what is the sure footing of the church? What is sort of the first thing, the main thing? that we need to keep in mind. This seems to be important for Paul and this for us too. So let me read to you the first 11 verses of chapter 15, 1 Corinthians. I'm reading from the ESV. Uh, some of you are wondering why it sounds maybe a touch different if you've got an NIV or something. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. I'm the least of the apostles. I'm worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning as we uh, look at your scriptures that you would speak to us. Uh, ground us in your word, Lord. In the same way that you invited the Corinthians to be grounded in the gospel, we pray uh, that you would ground us afresh in your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Three things here for us as we take a look at this passage. Uh, if you don't need your Bibles open for this, look at the first, first two verses. You'll notice he wants, to, he wants to remind them of the gospel. Paul seems to think this is really important. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you. And then he has a whole, whole variety of things that happen when the gospel shows up in our lives. So he wants to ground them in the gospel as the first thing. After all this stuff, all this stuff about tongues and prophecy and, you know, lots of good stuff. You kind of flip back through, through First Corinthians, lots of good stuff. Stuff about the Lord's Supper, you know, stuff about sexual immorality, stuff about lawsuits, all kinds of stuff about living as Christians. Then he says, I want to remind you of the gospel we preach. Let's get back to the first things first. Do you see that there? Then, verses 3 to 7. 
He talks a lot about the gospel reality. What is the gospel? He kind of re-gives it to them. He kind of refreshes them in it. And then he ends with this great portion of grace. You see that? By the grace of God. Verse 8 through to 11. So that's kind of where we're headed. I think it's easy for us folks to get distracted from the main thing. I mean, we, uh, it was my mom's birthday earlier this week. We had some folks over. And uh, we're living at my parents' right now because our basement flooded a month ago. And we're still not at home. And uh, so we're all over at mom and dad's having a good time. And we got talking about um, the tendency when you're inviting people over to kind of want to go, how, like, how much do I clean my house? Right? Have you ever had this? When you're having people over, you go, I should probably clean something. You know, and that's well and good. And we were talking, um, mom's sister was over, my aunt, we were talking about how my grandma used to, used to do this. We were talking about the cleaning before people came over. And it's easy for some of us, if you are very, very, um, you know, you just really want to be perfect, you can spend a lot of time getting all the little dust bits out of just about everything and uh, miss out on the main thing which is to enjoy and to be present with the people who are coming over, right? It is uh, good to steward well our homes and keep things clean, um, but we can get so busy doing this one thing that we miss out on the better thing. See how that works? It reminds me a little bit of Martha and Mary and Jesus, and Martha is really busy getting everything ready in the house, and Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet, and Jesus says, actually, Mary's doing the one thing most necessary. She's doing the right thing which is to be in my company, and not to get so caught up in all the stuff that you've kind of lost track of why Jesus was here in the first place. In the same way, we can kind of get the cleaning house uh, and take and start to trump our call to be hospitable. I like to say it this way. Um, we can be so busy scrubbing walls, we forget to sort of kiss little cheeks and love the, love the people in our lives. And this happens in church. All that to say this, that Paul wants to remind the church first things first. You can be so busy trying to get everything just so and miss out on why we exist in the first place. And so he wants to ground them in the main thing, which is the gospel. I think it's really important, folks, that we have a clear understanding of what gospel is. We kind of throw that word around, but I hope it carries the weight and the punch that it's meant to. He wants to ground them in the gospel. After all of the issues... All the issues, we talked last week about some of the issues. All the issues in the church, he wants to get them back to Jesus. And that is really, uh, folks, the main thing for us as well. We have a lot that we can do and a lot that's really good to do. But if it's not Christ-centered from the outset, we've gotten off on the wrong foot from the very get-go. So Paul brings them back to Jesus and the message of what Jesus has done. Um, I was talking with a friend this week and... uh, There'd be a tendency, I think, to think of Christianity as sort of one religion among many. Um, so, you know, there's sort of this idea that all, all religions are sort of basically kind of the same or sort of generally good. And, you know, in Christianity, we're called to love our neighbor and that sort of thing. That's pretty good, you know, uh, makes sense. And, you know, other religions kind of do the same thing. Um, when we do that, when we, make, when we make the Christian faith just about sort of our moralism, as in kind of how you live, uh, and take Jesus out of it, you've kind of lost the faith, actually. Uh, It's Jesus Christ that makes Christianity so absolutely unique. Uh, So Christianity is not sort of an abstract set of philosophical ideas so much as it's about a person. 
and his, his story and realizing his story is our story. Um, every night we sing uh, the same song to Rowan, and it sort of tells his story. And it's actually the gospel story. It starts with creation and incarnation and about the Lord's return. And uh, I like to think every night I'm actually singing his story. This is the story that he's been written into. Uh, his story is God's story. So we need to know the story. And that's what Paul does. Now notice with me, please, if you look again, uh, first two verses, what does Paul do? Take a look at the verbs here. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel. Then look at this. He says, I preached to you, and you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. I think it's interesting. You get sort of past tense. Paul preached, and they received. And then you get present. They stand, and they are being saved. Do you see that? So something happened in the past. The gospel was preached. They received it. And now in light of what's happened in the past, they are standing and they are being saved. Isn't that interesting? It's not they were saved. They are being saved. It seems for Paul and throughout the New Testament that your conversion is not a one-time event. You don't get saved. You are being saved. It is a lifelong process and journey of coming to faith in Christ, of maturing in Christ. So there may be one event where you received salvation, but your conversion is your ongoing response to God's work in your life. Do you see that? You are being saved, says Paul. This is an ongoing journey of your salvation. And this is why, of course, you can write to them. Uh, you're, when you come to faith in Christ, it's not, it's not a good end. It's a good beginning. This is, you're just getting started. And folks, I think, I think that's really important because, again, if Christianity is about my relationship to this person, Jesus, who is indeed God, then coming to faith and being saved, or be, you know, becoming saved, is about living out this relationship. So I'd like to think of it like this. Uh, when, I, when I got married to Sarah, we said some important vows, and things started, right? But now I'm living out my marriage to Sarah, right? So, so something happened, and it was very significant and very important. It started, but now we're called to live it out. And the living it out is actually the main thing. I like to tell couples when I'm doing premarital counseling, your wedding's important, but your marriage is more important. The wedding's just the day, and you're going to get through it, whether, you know, it might rain, it might, whatever. Who knows? But you're going to get through it, you're going to say your vows, and when it's done, it's done. The big thing is actually the marriage. I want to prepare you for a good marriage. Not just a good wedding. That's great. But let's get the marriage good. This is the more important thing. And I think salvation is kind of like this, folks. That if it's a relationship, it's something we kind of grow into over time. We want to develop that relationship. Speaking with another friend this week, and we were saying, you know, if we really mean that our relationship with Jesus is indeed a relationship with Jesus, it means I actually have to spend time with Jesus. You know, like I have a relationship with Sarah, and I do, and I never spend time with her. How do I expect that to grow? You know, like it would just exist. But it's not going to thrive. It's not going to actually blossom. It's not going to be healthy. Right? You need to actually spend time together for that to be healthy and to grow. So when you get married, you live under one roof. Then sometimes I know people have jobs and whatnot, and you're not always together. But like the idea is you kind of want to spend most of your time together, Right? you want to grow this marriage. 
The same thing with following Jesus. This is in which we stand. This is the gospel in which we stand and are being saved as we grow into relationship with Jesus. Paul's not saying they're perfect. He's not saying they're without sin. But you're being redeemed by Christ. So remember Jesus. Remember the gospel. Remember your first love. It's kind of like he's saying. Remember what I first preached to you. This is the main thing. This is the main thing. So Paul wants to re-ground them in their identity. Do you see that? It's easy for our identities to get kind of shifted around. Paul wants to re-ground them in Christ. Keep first things first. That's that first point there. In which you stand and are being saved. So then, what does he do? Look at verse 3 with me, please. He starts to deliver to them what he received. The gospel is the message of Christ being passed on from one generation to the next. And so Paul's saying, I'm going to pass on to you faithfully what I received. And as you receive this, this is what will, this is what will establish you, and this is what will begin that process of you being saved as you hold fast to this. So Paul recounts for them what Christianity is. What was the message that Paul first received? And it's not a what, as we said, it's a who. It's not just a moral checklist. It's not just Christianity is living this certain way. If you get it right, then God loves you. No, it's not that. I hope you don't pick that. Goodness. It's not a moral checklist. It's a person. It's the gospel of Christ. And Paul wants to stress for them that it's a historical truth. Notice what he does. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised. And he appeared. He's giving them nitty-gritty historical details, like what I pass on to you is not some epiphany I had on a Saturday night with two friends. No, no, this is what actually happened. Like I'm passing on to you things that really happened and that actually make a real difference in your life and in the life of the world. So fundamentally so that we'll actually shift the way we actually date our calendar because of this one person. So much so that even the staunch Jewish people that they are, brilliant, beautiful people, worship on Sabbath. No, no, now we're going to start worshiping on Sunday. What? What changes that? Well, because the life and death and resurrection of one person changes everything. These things can start to change. So he relays for them the gospel. God entered time and space and matter. He calls the incarnation. Jesus came and we killed him. And yet God used that in accordance with scriptures to raise him to new life and in doing so to take all the punishment for our sin and death for all people and for all time and to pay the price for it once and for all so that as we come to him in faith we can have a new life in him and actually be saved. That's the gospel. His resurrection defeats our sin and death. He's the ransom. I think it's interesting how much Paul focuses on resurrection. Look at this, right? Christ died for our sins. Yep, he was buried. He was raised on the third day. And then he spent so much time talking about the appearances. Why would he do that? You know, no mention here of what he taught. No mention of the miracles. No mention of the virgin birth. What's Paul's big emphasis? That the resurrection actually happened. And we saw him. Look at, look at all the people he, he kind of brings up as witnesses. You've got Cephas, the Twelve, then more than 500, then James, then all the apostles, and finally himself. So he's, he's listing over 500 people who saw Jesus after the resurrection. 
Now, when you are doing good investigative journalism, you often ask, well, what happened? Right? And you want to ask the people who are present, what happened? Uh, we were doing a, a, we had a bit of a uh, picture photo shoot thing that uh, uh, my mother-in-law won. And uh, so we were in Winnipeg. We had won this sort of family photo shoot. And we'd all gone off. It was at a park somewhere. I can't remember where. And we'd all sort of driven off to the park. And uh, we're waiting to find her. We don't know what she looks like, right? So you're kind of looking for someone with cameras, right? And hoping they know who you are. And you're kind of, we're kind of looking, trying to investigate each other and figure out who's where. Suddenly we heard this screech down the highway beside us. And there was an accident happened, like right there. It was really intense. This guy kind of clipped this other guy, and the trailer turned, and he sort of jackknifed, and the whole thing just went and slid to this halt. And it was all very exciting. And uh, my father-in-law started running down the highway to go to go see if everyone was okay. And my mother-in-law was like, do I phone? What do I do? And so we're all running, you know, running to see. And then, of course, it was kind of hilarious, because one of the, one of the guys in the accident was actually a paramedic. He was totally fine. We're like, man, they arrived really quickly. Oh, no, wait. <laughs> he was in the accident. And, uh, you know, we checked it all out. And, and then we had to say, well, do you need witnesses, right? Because we saw what happened. We were here. We saw you hit that other guy. If it comes down to some sort of issue of who hit who, we saw. In the end, all was well. No one was hurt. And we didn't have to do anything quite as dramatic as that. But we were witnesses to what happened. And in the same way, Paul is saying, here is the list of people who are witnesses to the resurrection, which really happened. There's a lot of people. Now, in Jewish court, you only need two people to have the same sort of witness to justify what the testimony is. So if you've got two, this is why it's such a big deal when they're going to, uh, when they're trying Jesus uh, at the crucifixion, and they can't get the witnesses, or they produce false witnesses, because they need two people to be able to kind of nail this guy. Well, here Paul's giving 500 plus people, right? The evidence is overbearing. Paul says, look, we have over 500 people that can point to the historical reality of Christ's resurrection. Now, I know, and if you've ever, you know, maybe you have unsaved friends, or you're, you're, a, you're not a Christian here this morning, you're kind of investigating what's Christianity all about, um, but there's been a lot of rejection to the idea of the historical resurrection of Jesus. A lot of rejection to that. But folks, the evidence really speaks otherwise, and I think it's interesting that Paul, Paul points to the evidence here, doesn't he? You've got some, you've got some big, some big things happening. So first of all, some people say. Um, well, maybe there wasn't really an empty tomb, right? Maybe there was an empty tomb. Maybe the women went to the wrong tomb, and the, you know, and it was empty. Well, really, you know, the disciples went too. They all knew where the tomb was. Really, think they went to the wrong tomb? <laughs> the other thing that, that sometimes people point out is say, well, maybe the disciples stole the body. You know, they made, they got in there and took the body and made off with it. Well, if they did that. And it was all just a hoax. Well, why would they be willing to die for it? You've got to be really committed to it if you're going to die for it uh, when you just kind of made the whole thing up. Right? Well, then there's the swoon theory, which is that Jesus didn't actually die. He just fainted on the cross. And then he kind of got down and he kind of came to and 
you know, he was home, good, good, well and good, and off he went. But that seems really unlikely that Jesus would survive everything that happened in those hours leading up to the crucifixion. The crucifixion's meant to kill you. It's not pretty. It's really effective, you know? And he also gets stabbed as well. And he's been flogged already. He's got a crown of thorns. Like, it's not, he's not in good shape at that point. So the fact that you've got an empty tomb, the evidence points to that being true. Then you've got the tradition of these resurrection appearances. Now, you, some people say, well, those are probably just fabrications. I mean, these people love Jesus. Maybe they just made the whole thing up. But Paul can, Paul can point to literally hundreds of people that have seen him. It seems really unlikely that you could actually get everyone together and say, okay, folks, here's the story. Right? We're all going to say that we saw him at this and this place, right? And he looked like this. Well, you know what? They don't have that kind of communication. Like, it takes forever to get in touch with people. You know, if you're not, you can't just phone someone up on your phone or check Facebook. Paul, come to the house. You know, we're going to get our story straight. No, they can't do that. He's literally appeared to hundreds of people at all sorts of different locations. Some people say, well, is it just mass hallucinations? <coughs> you know, they all really want to see Jesus come back to life, and so maybe they just all had kind of a mass vision, and they're willing to die for it because they really do think it's true. Well, you know, none of them actually believe resurrection's going to happen. They have no reason to believe that. Resurrection isn't a thing that you think of. They don't, they don't think Jesus is coming back from the dead. That's why when he does, they are freaked right out. Right? What? It's happening. And Jesus has to say, no, no, it's me. It's okay. Got scars. You can feel it. I'll eat the fish so you can tell I'm real. Eat the fish, right? No. The evidence points to the resurrection being true, folks. Being true. And that's where Paul kind of lands with this. He says, no, no, I want to ground you in the gospel. This is what will hold you fast. And here's the details. It's the historical life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And because he is raised, we can have true assurance and hope, folks, that what he said and what he promised is actually true and for us. That's the great promise, the, the resurrection. When, when God resurrects Jesus, he's sort, of, he's sort of stamping his authority on saying, yes, everything that Jesus said about himself and everything that he promised is really true. Death cannot hold him. And so if we put our faith in this one who has died for us, that when we die, our faith is lodged with the one who's been through death and on the other end again. That's why for the Christian, death is not something to be feared anymore. And yes, it's, a, it's the enemy. It's, it's not good. Um, it's never something that's sort of a, a good thing. But for the Christian, death is not the end. Literally, not the end. Because it wasn't the end for Jesus. So it's the promise of resurrection. Not just Christ's resurrection, but our own resurrection. Future bodily resurrection. Folks, I think it's interesting, isn't it? That for Paul... The church is the church because of this hope of the resurrection. Like he could, he could list a bunch of other things here, but instead he says, no, no. The gospel, the good news, is that this actually happened. And because it happened, it has ramifications for you. And it's good. You don't have to walk in sin anymore. You don't have to walk in loneliness and fear anymore. God has come for you because he loves you. 
And all of this by God's grace. We don't deserve this. We don't earn this. It's all a gift. This is God's love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that's why I love where Paul goes. Do you see that? So he talks about resurrection. And then in verse 8, Last of all, he appeared even to me, and I'm the least of the apostles. I was killing Christians. Like, Paul is not, like, does not qualify. He does not meet the code of conduct. He does not pass the criminal record check. You know? Nope. He does not. He's not getting in. And yet, why? Because of grace. And that's where Paul ends the section, right? I don't deserve this gift of the gospel, says Paul. I'm the least. I was persecuting the church, and yet Christ called me. He saved me. He forgave even me. And folks, if there's any point in your life where you've ever felt unworthy of God's grace, hear this. If Paul can still qualify, you can too. If the grace of God is, is big enough to forgive Paul, it's big enough to forgive you. And I don't think many of us here, maybe some of you, but I don't think we've been killing people. But even if you were, even if your sin felt that heavy and that big, by the grace of God, you can be saved. And that's where Paul goes. I'm so unworthy, says Paul. I'm not even worthy to be an apostle, let alone a Christian, right? But by the grace of God, verse 10, I am what I am. I'm the apostle. I'm the believer I am today. And because of this gospel grace for me, now I have the desire to serve and to live for Jesus. And so you see how that works. We don't, we don't do stuff for God in order to get saved. We come to faith in Christ, and then out of that grace and out of that thankfulness, we have a desire to live for him. Right? It's, you're saved for, by grace in order to then do the good works, in order to live for Christ. But you don't do the stuff to get the grace. You see how that works? Yeah, it's so easy to get that switched, isn't it? It's so easy to think, man, I didn't do the stuff right now. God doesn't love me. I'm no good. Blah, blah, blah. No. By grace, you're saved through faith in Christ. Now go and live. And that's what Paul's done. He doesn't earn the grace or the favor, but he's living in thankfulness to God. And that's what he does. The grace propels him to live for Jesus. Folks, none of us deserve this. Hey, you look at this passage, none of us deserve this. That's why the gospel's good news, right? Christ came to save even the worst of us. That means I can stop trying to save myself. In fact, I have to do something that sometimes can feel hard, which is uh, just be willing to receive the grace. Receive the life that God has given me. Stop trying to do it on my own. But to hold fast to Jesus. And what does he say? This is the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand. This is your sure footing as a Christian. It's the grace of Christ for you. This is what establishes you. And as you live into this, this is what uh, keeps you going on that journey of salvation in Christ. Folks, if, if, uh, if you're here this morning, I'm just going to wrap this up for us. If you don't know Jesus and you're asking questions and you're wondering what's this all about, I hope you hear today that you are loved. God loves you. 
He's died and has raised again, been raised again, so that you can know that great love. So you can know that grace for yourself. It's the gospel, folks. It's for each and every one of us. If you're a Christian today, and you know this, um, maybe in your head, but I want to challenge you. Are you, are you really holding fast to this in your heart? Right? This is your ground. This is your sure footing as a Christian. It's the gospel. Are you walking in his grace? Or is grace sort of a side thing? You're just trying to do it all on your own. Um, don't try and save yourself. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Rest in his assurance and the hope of his resurrection. Because it's true. And it makes all the difference in the world. Amen. Uh, folks, I'd like to turn to prayer. It's the end of my sermon. Let me pray for you. Father, it, uh, it's so easy for us, I think, Lord, to forget uh, the extravagance of your grace for us. That's so easy, Lord, to, to hear that word, to hear the gospel, and yet to still try and, and live as though it's something we have to achieve for ourselves. Father, I pray that you would uh, restore our hearts, uh, open our minds, uh, and our faith, Lord, to walk with you, uh, to receive your grace, but then uh, not sort of in an easy grace kind of way where we say, hey, I'm good with God, and I'll just do whatever I want. But, but like Paul, he recognized, Lord, the depth of your mercy for him. He recognized the sinfulness of his sin. And he recognized the goodness of your grace. And then in that place, knowing his forgiveness, Lord, then he chose to follow you. He wanted to walk out his faith and thankfulness to you. And so, Lord, I pray that over each and every one of us who's a, who's a Christian this morning, who's a disciple. Father, will you uh, return us to this really central gospel truth uh, that you lived and died and were raised. And this is a historical fact, Lord. And it changes everything. Lord, you took our sin, and our sins of this past week, and you, you died for them so that we could live. Lord, I pray that we would cheapen your death, that you would cause us to walk in the fullness of the life that you've come to give us. Uh, Lord, help us in those days when we feel uh, it's really difficult. And may we be reminded Paul reminds us here in this passage that uh, as we lean into you, Jesus, we find our sure footing in the gospel. It's this message uh, that is saving us. And Lord, I pray that for some of us who just struggle with the guilt of past sins and past uh, issues and things in our lives, Lord, uh, if there's anyone that can relate, it's Paul in this passage. He's got blood on his hands. And yet he knows your grace and your mercy and he, he walks it out. So Father, today I pray for each of us that you would equip us with your grace. Uh, strengthen us in your gospel, Lord. Remind us of the truth of your salvation. Teach us to walk it out uh, with fear and trembling and knowing that you are good and that you love us. 
Father, we lift up those in our community, Lord, that really need a touch of you. And I especially want to lift up Doug Finlayson, and Lord, he's heading to Winnipeg today, Lord, and we're facing pretty serious surgery. And so, Father, we pray that as he goes and as Lois goes, as Alex drives them, Lord, that your peace and your presence would go with them. Father, we pray that you would bring assurance and rest to Doug's mind. Um, Father, encourage him in your grace and in your love. And we, we speak life and healing over him, Lord. We pray that you would, you would do a work in his body. Lord, we lift up others in our congregation, Lord, who aren't well. There's a, there's a good many of us, Lord, who are, are facing uh, physical uh, needs, Lord, emotional and, and mental and spiritual needs. And so, Lord, we just take a few moments in silence and we lift these requests to you. situations in our lives that seem so big and so hard to deal with. Uh, Lord, for the, the financial issues and the, and the marriage marriage problems and the um, questions about the future. Lord, all these things we give to you. We ask that you would lead us and guide us in your truth by your grace. And Lord, as uh, you taught us, let's pray. Uh, your prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.